welcome to the Convergence VC podcast with Jamie Burke and Lawrence Lundy of OutlierVentures.io, a fund and venture builder dedicated to the next web paradigm. We're here to explore the intersection of blockchain with AI, mixed reality, autonomous robotics, IoT, and 3D printing. We believe blockchain-like solutions are foundational to these other technologies scaling securely, and most interestingly, converging. It's this topic we explore every week with some brilliant guests from around the world. You can follow us and our community at convergence.vc, as well as stay up to date on our latest research and global events calendar. Today, we are joined by Vlatko Vedral, Professor of Quantum Information Science at Oxford University and the Centre of Quantum Technologies at the National University of Singapore. He has published over 280 research papers in quantum mechanics and quantum information and was awarded the Royal Society Wolfston Research Merit Award in 2007. As of 2017, there were over 16,000 citations to his papers. He is also the author of several books, including Decoding Reality. So we wanted to invite Vladko onto the podcast today to try and, as much as we can, understand quantum information and quantum computing, and predominantly to see how this might impact the future of computing and of cryptography. Ultimately, I think what we really want to know is, will quantum computing render Bitcoin and other crypto asset networks useless? Okay, so... Vladko, can you explain a little bit about what the word convergence actually means to you in your world? The word convergence, actually, it's, um, it's a very important one to a scientist, I think, uh, these days. Historically, I think you could see science is emerging and separating from philosophy about maybe 400 years ago. And I think the first one was maybe physics and, and then chemistry, biology and so on. And in some sense, all of these sciences separated in their development, you know, in other words, they diverged uh, historically to the point that if a physicist talks to a chemist, it's, uh, it's frequently the case that they won't be able to really understand each other, <laughs> simply because of the jargon and the concepts that they're using are very different. However, these days, somehow, I think we're witnessing a, a kind of backwards trend from that. And I think to me, that, that would be the, the main thing about convergence is that a lot of physics is now going into chemistry and chemistry into biology and even further than that. And we are really trying to unify our understanding. So, you know, are the, are the laws of physics really somehow relevant for the laws of chemistry and biology? How are they related? And these are very big questions that, that people are starting to think about uh, now. And then is there a, a reason why this is happening now or is it just a, a function? I mean, been uh, a long, long time where these first uh, started to diverge. So, so why do you think it's now that they might be converging? It's a, it's a very good point, actually. I, can, I mean, you, you know, one can only speculate, but I think it's probably two things. One is that each of these developed independently without the need of the other one. You know, each of the sciences probably could dig quite deep just on its own and using its own concepts for a long time. But I think now we are reaching a kind of state where this is no longer possible. So, you know, if you want to really understand how to develop some kind of medical cure for a disease, I think you have to understand chemistry. But actually, frequently, you even have to dig deeper and to understand really the chemistry behind these things, you have to go into quantum physics, which is very interesting. So I think there is a genuine need 
that, that in order to solve certain outstanding problems, it seems that we will have to connect these disciplines. I think that's kind of a point number one. Point number two would be that technology is simply at the level where, where we can do these things. So, you know, quantum effects, for instance, used to be confined to very tiny systems for a long time. We couldn't uh, experiment with anything more than maybe nuclei or atoms or particles of light, you know, photons. But actually, nowadays, we can take a large molecule and we can handle it almost completely quantum mechanically. So there's a kind of natural entry for quantum physics into chemistry and, and possibly into biology as well. Okay, well, I guess that leads nicely into maybe if you could spend a minute or two just to summarize the big idea that you want to talk about today on the show. Yes, I think the biggest idea is, is possibly the convergence in physics in my own field. And I think what's interesting to us really is that we now tend to view every physical system as composed of a number of quantum bits of information. And that's really the big idea. You know, it doesn't matter whether you talk about light or you talk about solids or liquids or gases or anything else, even, even galaxies. You could actually think of that as a bunch of quantum bits of information which interact with one another and exchange quantum information as well. And I think this offers us a huge unified way of understanding lots of disparate phenomena in physics. Uh, so this language of quantum bits allows us to somehow see that maybe these phenomena that at first sight seem extremely different and maybe even unrelated, they actually are instances of one and the same kind of information processing. And I think that's the big idea, really. And I guess before we dig a little bit deeper, it would be good if we could tell the audience a little bit about you, your background and some of the work that you're doing at the University of Oxford, as well as um, the National University of Singapore? I actually studied physics in London at Imperial College. And I think I was very lucky to encounter this idea that what, what's relevant when, when you want to understand the physical system is how you can obtain information about this physical system. And so at that time, this was, this was maybe in the early 90s, we started to use more and more the language of information theory in physics itself. And this first experiment that I tried to understand, and this is one of my first papers actually as well, it's a, it was an interaction between a single particle of light and a single atom inside an area that's, that's extremely small, something like a micron, so, you know, a millionth of a meter. So, you know, all the action takes place in space that we cannot see directly, of course, we have to amplify it to get the signal. But it was fascinating to me that in order to understand matter, you really needed to get information through the interaction with light. And equally, if you want to understand light, you really need to use matter to couple it to light. And, and somehow uh, these two the interplay between light and matter is really the key to understanding most of these phenomena. It's really the quantum information I was talking about that's relevant. Interestingly, I was actually thinking and looking at the experiments that later on ended up being the Nobel Prize in physics a couple of years back. So that was really the beginning of this technology then, that now many, many places are, are developing in the world. And actually, you know, that brings me maybe to the, you know, to the current state. Both places where, where I spent most of my time, Oxford and Singapore, are trying to develop quantum technologies in their own ways, actually. So the question, the main question really is what platform, what kind of physical platform do you think will provide the best implementation of quantum bits? 
and different places are betting on different technologies, interestingly enough. So, you know, there is optics, there is light, there are photons, there's quantum bits. Many people are using atoms, many people are using molecules. And there is there a, a reason for that? Uh, um, it's a, is there a reason why that uh, different locations are betting on different technologies? Is yes. There is? Yes, it's, why yeah, it's a very good point. Yes, it's an interesting point, actually. So I think we, we still don't really know which of these would be the, the best. There are two issues. One is the question of stability. So, you know, which of them are the easiest to stabilize when you're trying to apply many gates? So every time you, you apply a gate to your system, there is a potential that, that it will also undergo an error. And you're trying to reduce these errors so that you can execute a, a, long, a long computation, actually, without any faults. Now, people believe that some systems are easier to control in this way. So, for instance, a single atom seems remarkably stable at the moment, and that gives us possibly the best qubit with the highest fidelity. So people, for instance, can, can do a gate, a quantum gate, quantum computational gate on an atom with a precision of 99.9999. So this is six nines, very close to a unit uh, fidelity, 100% fidelity. And this is why some people would tell you atoms are the best platform. Uh, the problem with atoms is that they are very hard to integrate with the rest of the technology that might be needed for this to, you know, to make a full computer, you actually need an awful lot of other technology, which is why some other people would bet, for instance, on superconductors. So the current computers are based on semiconductors and we have a very good understanding of how semiconductors work. And then people are saying, if you want to go fully quantum, then you should go superconductors because then we, we understand exactly how to integrate it fully and make a full final product, a device. And there is a company in Canada called D-Wave that actually sells you quantum devices these days. And I think their main rationale is really that it's easy to integrate with the rest of the, of the solid state technology. That's super interesting. And, and uh, D-Wave, I think Google are one of their clients, right? So That's um, right. That's and, right. And, they're, and they're using that commercially. I mean, is this stuff being used for real applications today? Yes. It is. Yes, I think that's what's really interesting, that one of the real applications already is in quantum cryptography. You can actually use quantum bits to encode information in a much more secure way than anything we can do classically. And people have already demonstrated uh, various protocols, usually because, like I, like I said, it's not easy to control a large number of quantum bits at the same time. These crypto protocols would usually entail a very small number of bits that are communicated between two parties. But of course, the main point is that even though it's a small, you know, a slow rate of communication, it's actually unconditionally secure quantum mechanically and, and no eavesdropper can actually break that communication. So somehow you pay the price in speed in quantum information at present but what you gain a lot on is insecurity. And I understand that even Alibaba, you know, in China, there, there is a, actually an experiment planned between the center where I work in Singapore, the Center for Quantum Technologies, and the corresponding center in China, which is fully funded by Alibaba. And I think by sometime, maybe the end of next year, they would like to execute a perfectly secure quantum cryptographic protocol. So, you know, these technologies out there you can use it to communicate between distant locations 
China is even developing a satellite quantum technology, communicating between satellites and Earth and so on. So I think it's only a question of time when the bit rate really improves enough that we can use this for everyday communication as well. Interesting. And it'd be good to dig a little bit deeper into practicalities of some of that in a moment. But as we go into the big idea and discuss it, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is, what is the biggest misconception? Because it is a very technical field and it is very complex to understand. And so there is a lot of miscommunication or misunderstanding, just like the AI field or, or even the, the blockchain yes. and Bitcoin field. So I, I'll put it to you. I mean, what is the biggest misconception about quantum computing? The biggest misconception, I would say, is what it even means for an object to be a quantum computer. Again, I think D-Wave comes to mind. Uh, they are, I guess for marketing purposes, they, they are really branding and selling their product as a full quantum computer. But actually, if you look into it, and I think everyone from the field, any expert would really uh, agree with this statement, their machine is, is only very, very partly, in fact, it's, it's quantum in a very limited sense of that word. And I can be more more concrete about it. What it really means is that to be a full quantum computer, you really need to be able to execute any set of operations that you want to execute, just like a classical computer that we have at present. So any arithmetic operation I want to do, your computer would actually have to be able to, to do that. So anything allowed by the laws of logic, if you like, uh, you have to be able to handle on a, on a conventional computer. And if you cannot do that, then it would not be fair to call your computer a universal computer, mm, if you like, yeah. universal string machine. And I think a big misconception outside of the field is really what are we allowed to call a universal quantum computer? You know, what's the equivalent of the, of the classical computers that we have now? Having looked at, you know, what comes after classical computing, you have kind of two diverging Fields, you kind of a quantum computer or maybe a biological computer. Right? Yes. Biological, which is a lot more energy efficient and yes. can be encoded in DNA, or, or you maybe model more around the human brain, but the energy efficiencies of, of quantum are, are very challenging. So, yes. um, what, what are your thoughts on, on the future of quantum computing? Does it, it, will it always remain energy inefficient to the sense that they'll sort of run the cloud whilst there'll be sort of devices that will more likely run on biological computers? Do you kind of have a thought around the energy side of quantum computing? Yes, I think it's actually a, an excellent point because it seems to me uh, we discussed uh, the, the stability of computation as a major obstacle, but actually what you now raised is, is another major issue, and that's to do with how much energy you have to spend per computational step. And indeed, quantum computers at present are extremely inefficient. And the simple reason for that is that in order to stabilize quantum bits, we really need to bring the temperature down frequently to extremely, extremely low temperatures. So think about your fridge. You know, you need to use a lot of electricity and you, you need to pay a higher bill, basically, if you have a fridge in your house. And the more powerful the fridge, of course, the more electricity you'll be using. And it's very similar with, with quantum computers that... The energy to cool some of these quantum bits down is, is really uh, ridiculously high and it's unsustainable. You know, you cannot scale up a computer with this kind of efficiency. You also pointed out that biological systems are much more efficient and, and that's actually completely true as well. I think biological computers 
or biological gates, if you think, for instance, of the DNA replication as a form of computation, they would still be three or four orders of magnitude, so 1,000 or 10,000 times more efficient in terms of energy than, than even our classical computers now. So even our current conventional computers are, are not close enough to biological systems, and quantum computers are certainly further off. So I think this won't be the case in the future. Actually, I'm hoping this won't be the case. The reason being that I think um, at some point we will be able to find a quantum system that's stable enough at temperatures that are high enough that we don't have to waste so much energy in cooling. Of course, you know, the dream case scenario for all of us would be to have a room temperature quantum device. And the very, very related issue in physics is really room temperature superconductivity. So we actually don't have superconductors at room temperatures these days, but it's an open possibility physics-wise. There's nothing really preventing us from that. So I'm just speculating now, you know, if, if one day anyone came up with a room temperature superconductor, I think this would provide a fantastic platform for qubits, and that would solve most of our energy problems probably. And so uh, that's kind of further reinforces the point of, of compute. We kind of have this classical computer, which is kind of at the moment used as general purpose, kind of pretty, pretty yes. much any application. That's, that's our right. only solution. And that's we right. may be moving more into a, an era for which different applications will have different um, energy trade-offs. And therefore, for, you, you know, you may need quantum computing for, for weather forecasting or DNA. Yes. Of, uh, you know, um, forecasting or on the other side, you know, a mobile device might be, you know, if we're talking yes. 20, 20 years out better for biological. Are there that same lens, you know, this multiplicity of, of devices to use, to use for different applications? Do you see that same thing extending for things like quantum key distribution? We currently have the internet. Do you see like the internet being used for some use cases, whereas, you know, extremely secure types of use cases will, will need to be done over you know larger quantum key distribution networks or is that lens probably inappropriate no i think that's very true actually i think you you can see applications where quantum cryptography would be necessary and i also feel that the intermediate period which probably we are now entering is a hybrid system as you say you'd be using classical encryption for the messages maybe that are less sensitive, whereas you would switch, you'd be able to switch to quantum encryption for more sensitive messages. And I think the same is true for computation. We're probably going to have a kind of hybrid quantum classical device, possibly already next year sometime. So, you know, we'll be able to, let's say, master about between maybe 50 and 100 quantum bits. And already that can do quite a bit that a classical computer cannot do. But I think these hundred quantum bits will be actually used together with the classical computational machinery. So it will be some kind of quantum classical, you know, hybrid device. So I think there is a lot of applications for devices like that. We, you've discussed cryptography. And yes. obviously some, a lot of our experience has been around the Bitcoin and, and blockchain world. Yes. And a recent quote from Anderson Cheng at Post Quantum, a UK firm, said that essentially... As soon as we get a, a full quantum computer and pretty much Bitcoin as a network becomes a lot less valuable, a lot less useful and arguably completely redundant. Yes. Whereas others would argue, well, actually, no, that, that's not necessarily the case. Do, do you have a view on that? 
I think you're right. I think there will be quite a lot of use simply because of this hybrid period. You know, there will never be a domain where we will have a large enough memory, probably even on a quantum computer, simply because we know that quantum computers them, themselves have limitations. So they can improve, of course, many classical algorithms, and some of them they can even improve exponentially. But the key one, which which everyone bases most of these applications on, is something that's equivalent to the traveling salesman problem. So it's basically a search problem where you have exponentially many alternatives to go through and you're looking for some kind of optimum, you know, a maximum, you know, the fastest route or, or anything like that. And actually, we know that a quantum computer also has a limitation as far as these problems are concerned. So in a way you can, you know, even though you have a more powerful machine in a quantum computer, you also know that there will be algorithms that a quantum computer also cannot crack. And these algorithms could well be based on some kind of classical encryption, in which case I don't think that uh, that things like blockchain will go out of use. You know, I think the classical crypto side will continue to develop as well. Okay, that's interesting. And then to follow that on, I guess it's not just the traditional more recent Bitcoin networks and, and other blockchain-based payment networks, but actually yes. just the, the fundamental financial system and runs yes. on, on, on even a less secure consensus yes, mechanisms and, and less secure. So uh, I guess a, a reasonable answer to that as well is, you know, it, quantum computers, the first use case will very be unlikely to be you know, breaking Bitcoin, it would be rather um, the existing financial infrastructure. Right? So the, e- the actual economics may protect Bitcoin because yes. the higher value targets might be the, the existing financial infrastructure. I only have anecdotal evidence of these things, of course, and, uh, and I think that's how things uh, should be, I suppose. But when Shor's algorithm came in 1994, so this one showed that you had a universal quantum computer, you could, you could uh, break the, the, the public uh, key crypto systems easily. Of course, what happened instantaneously after that is that I think more sensitive documents, governments would just switch to another form of encryption. Even the fact that there was a theoretical possibility that a quantum computer could break certain kind of encryptions, what it signals to you is that you should just switch to another kind of classical encryption that even a quantum computer would find hard. And I have a feeling that that most of these governmental documents that, that need to last for a 50-year period are now actually encrypted in a way that uh, that even a quantum computer could not break them. So you're right, you know, that this, this doesn't signal end to, to classical cryptography at all. I, I always assume, and maybe that's just uh, my political background coming up, but there's always a geopolitical angle to, to these yes. technologies. And there certainly is to AI at the moment, yes. sort of the race to to use AI and I mean, you're working in Singapore and equally in, in the UK. Yes. Do you find that, that the, a lot of the quantum developments are sort of state-sponsored and, and, and that just simply because also they're not really commercially viable yet. So there needs to yes. be some state, state investment. It is still a science project, of course, and it's still the scientific breakthroughs required, but states must be very, very interested in progress. Oh, absolutely. I think it still is uh, predominantly state sponsored so i think you have about uh, 2 300 million dollars investment in singapore you have a billion now invested by the eu there is also roughly 300 million pounds in uk and so uk set up four different quantum hubs um, three or four years ago and and i think this is true for most developed countries actually that the governments are still stimulating this quite a bit 
what happened last year, though, that was that was very interesting to us is certainly that companies, you know, big companies started to move in as well. And I think that's going to be crucial. So I think, you know, the investment from Google and Microsoft and Alibaba now, in fact, Alibaba apparently gave the biggest investment so far. I think this industrial push will be crucial at this stage. So I think to us, it was interesting that there was a signal from industries, which to us probably means that they are starting to take this technology more seriously. You know, it's possible. And I guess at some point, it's hard to predict when the industry will will take over. You know, it will be just a question of manufacturing it and producing it. And then sort of the early stage venture industry can yes. get involved to start taking on some of the risk away from the state. And then, absolutely, then, then you absolutely. have a real, a real then you have Exactly. And I think the, the role, you know, uh, much as, as they're criticized, you know, the D-Wave actually plays a hugely positive role in this case, because I think, you know, they were among the first ones to take that risk. They seem to be doing well, you know, they managed to, to survive and actually even thrive over a long period of time. So I think, you know, that's good. And there, there are many startups now, in fact. Great. And so to, um, to shift gears slightly for the last sort of five to 10 minutes, it would be good to a little bit about your, your existing work and specifically, I think what you are most excited about to deploy a quantum computational on. Are there any applications for which you can see, you know, real exponential improvements in oh, i mentioned dna sequencing earlier or, or weather forecasting or, or climate change forecasting are there any ones that you're ever working on or are excited about yes yes i think it's uh, it's actually i can tell you about one specific project in fact where what we are trying to do is is get a very simple uh system of uh, qubits in this case we are using uh, photons so every you know a single photon would encode a single quantum bit in this case. And it's relatively easy to produce them. We have, in fact, an organic molecule, which we can excite deterministically. And when excited, this molecule will decay, will emit energy in the form of light. And actually, this is how we can get a single photon out on, on demand. And if you generate enough of these photons, what we then do is we can inject them into a, a microchip in which we have waveguides. They're, they're so-called waveguides, but they're basically like paths, grooves in, on, on a chip uh, through, through which these photons can actually travel. And you can show that with this very, very simple system, it's actually extremely easy to control. It's very cheap, relatively cheap to produce this chip, interestingly enough, compared to other technologies. Mm. We, can, we can actually simulate other more complex physical systems. So what we're trying to do is we are trying to understand certain biological processes which take place in extremely complex biological molecules that have more, more than, you know, hundreds of thousands of atoms. And we're trying to understand how these processes take place why do they work the way they do? For instance, you know, we're talking about processes like photosynthesis or maybe even the equivalent processes in the body of in the cells of animals where you have a transport of electrons over a certain distance, which seems to be fully quantum mechanical. And that's interesting to us. So we're trying to simulate that using a very simple quantum computer that's based on optics. And I think we will get a lot of mileage out of it. I mean, of course, at the moment, we are only trying to simulate a few very simple interactions that involve a very small number of quantum bits, maybe up to 10 at most. But I think if this can be scaled up, then it could have potentially a huge impact in, you know, in chemistry, biology, 
possibly in drug design as well, which I think is the most exciting long-term prospect. And what are the challenges of, of scaling up, um, you know, tangibly? Um, is it cost or, or, or what are the real challenges? Yes, there's always a cost there, but I think the real challenge is how to produce these chips. Because what you have to do is you have to pack a lot of these waveguides onto a very small surface area. And so that means you have to be able to handle a straight trajectory of a photon that then has to bend around the curve and go around and so on. And you have to be able to make this many times on a single chip. And every time you do that, actually, every time a photon has to bend, if you like, there is a certain loss associated with that because of the reflection inside the chip. So it's extremely hard to design long paths of photons without having a huge loss that comes with that. So it's, again, a type of error correction, really, that we need to develop for this. It's always struck me that quantum, um, or at least struggling with this exponential increase of, of variables, that really complex systems can and hopefully one day be modeled. And that always led me to things like um, modeling the, the human brain or, or modeling climate yes. change and those sorts of, of areas. Are they also applications that are being tested at the moment or rather we need a much more stable and cheaper quantum computer to be able to tackle those such problems? Yes, I, I like that very much, actually, especially the, the brain, you know, understanding how the brain works and human consciousness. And there are some really interesting speculations there that the brain might actually rely on, on certain quantum effects. That's quantum tunnel, tunneling, correct? That's right. There's quantum tunneling there. Uh, of course, you know, the whole of, of the brain is, is too large to be fully quantum, but that doesn't prevent it from having areas, tiny areas, which it can maintain in a quantum state for long enough that, you know, that it matters for its information processing. I think, as you pointed out, probably the quantum computers that we have now, even if we had 100 quantum bits next year, are probably still too small to fully understand this. But maybe some of these individual bits of information processing will, you know, there are some really interesting speculations that some very simple molecules can store quantum information inside the brain even up to 24 hours. And I think this would be fascinating if this was really possible. And maybe with a small quantum computer, you could begin to test ideas like that. Amazing. Well, what a great um, thought to end on. So, you know, on that, I'd like to thank Blacko for, uh, for joining us on Convergence and really appreciate your time and, and, and helping us um, through what is a very complicated and, and technical field, but I think making it much more simple for our audience. So thank you very Thanks much. Thanks very much. Hey, it's a great pleasure for me. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to head over to convergence.vc to subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find out when we're holding events in a city near you. You can also follow us on Twitter at VC Convergence.